In Matthew 11:28 through 30, Jesus said, Come to me, all of you that are heavy laden, overburdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart. As we take the yoke of Jesus upon our hearts, upon our lives, he is the one that will give us rest. Welcome to freedom, becoming fully alive. I pray that this time today will be a time where your eyes will be open and the Lord will give you ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to obey and truly set you free. Amen. As you can see, I'm weighted down this morning. The handcuffs, and uh, those of you that are on video may not be able to see the leg weights, but it's the Lord's will to set us free. He's got a plan for our lives, and his plan includes freedom. And he is the answer to that freedom. He doesn't want us carrying these heavy weights. His yoke is light. His yoke is easy. When the, when the word of God speaks of pride and humility versus meekness and trying to control life, we see what the Lord is up to. Because if we are guilty of pride, the Lord wants us to repent of that pride and cast all our cares on him and receive his humility. And when it comes to meekness, we see that as we run our own lives, uh, he wants us to repent of running our own lives and submit to him and let him be in control, which is true meekness. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. These things that are heavy, these things that weigh upon us, have their core, have their center in pride and trying to control life. There's different forms of that, and we're going to talk about that today. But those are the core issues, pride and trying to control life in different variations thereof. But the antidote of the Lord, the answer that the Lord provides is humility and meekness. That's his answer. And I pray that your hearts will be open today as we go through that. As we turn to our outline today, the uh, title of our session today is Freedom from the Real Problem. Freedom from the Real Problem. The real problem is rooted in pride and trying to control life. But the Lord had a plan. Many years ago, the Lord had a plan. And what was his plan for man? We see in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, he made us in his image and his likeness. He made us as a moral being. We're not an animal. He gave us a free will. He gave us an intellect. He gave us the ability to relate to him, spirit, soul, and body. A spirit to know him intimately. A soul, a mind, will, and emotions. An earth suit, a body that we would be housed in temporarily for all the days that we're on planet Earth. 
And it's his desire that we know him. It's his desire that we glorify him. It's his desire that we worship him forever. As you look over the different verses that are on the outline, Isaiah 43, we're precious in his sight. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever we do, eat or drink or whatever we do, do all for the glory of God. Revelation 4, 11, we were made for his pleasure. Psalm 73, 25 and 28, let's take a look at that. Psalm 73, verses 25 through 28. Whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but the Lord, God, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And also in Psalm 95, where it says in verses 6 and 7, Come, let us worship and bow down. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is God, and we are the people of His pasture and the flock under his care. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, it speaks of a calling. We've been called to have fellowship with him. That is the call with any, any other call. We've been called to him and to have fellowship with him. We've been called to come under his yoke, which is light and easy, and shed our pride, and trying to control life. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We can summarize all that I've said so far simply by saying devotion to God. We were made for him. We were made for his pleasure. We were made for relationship. We were made to bring glory and honor to his name. What does it mean to glorify him? It means to give a proper estimate of what he is like. It means to reflect him. How can we reflect him with pride? How can we reflect him with trying to control life? How can we really reflect him if we're not really free? He wants us to be free. So with all this wonderful plan, with all that this good and wonderful God had in mind for us, how did things go wrong? How did things go astray? Well, let's turn to Genesis, the third chapter, and see what that has to say. In Genesis, the third chapter, and I'm sure you know the story well, Satan tempted Eve, and I'll pick it up at verse 6, verse 6, and take it from there. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, well, before that, verse 5. Verse 4, actually. You will, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you, eat of, when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. There was the appeal. There was the appeal of pride. The one who personifies pride. The one who wanted to be as the most high, Satan himself came to mankind and basically tempted mankind, asked mankind to join him in the rebellion. You'll be as God, knowing good and evil, the appeal of pride. And then the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and 
pleasing, good for food, appetite for food, he appealed to her appetite for food, pleasing to the eye, appetite for pleasure, desirable to gain wisdom, there again, status, and appeal to pride again. She took it and ate of it, and then of course, Adam partook as well. So mankind at that point joined Satan in the rebellion. Notice what followed in the verses that follow, and I'll just touch on those. Immediately after they sinned, they covered up. They covered up. The shame of sin. And then they went on in verse 8 and hid from the Lord. And the Lord called to man and said, where are you? And he answered, verse 10, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So we have man rebelling, joining Satan in the rebellion, man feeling the shame of sin immediately, the great cover-up, man afraid, hiding, and then it goes on from there. And then he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman, this woman that you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, or excuse me, that's what the man said, this woman that you put me with, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The great blame game began. This woman that you gave me, this woman you gave me, the serpent beguiled me. So we have the rebellion, we have the shame, we have the fear, we have the blame. And then it goes on from there and we'll pick it up in verse, in chapter four of Genesis when Cain and Abel came on the scene. And it says in verse four, chapter four rather, verse one, Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to Abel. Now Abel kept the flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some, notice what it says, some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought the fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel's offering, uh, but on Cain's offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was angry and his face was downcast. Notice so far, we have the rebellion, we have the shame, we have the fear, we have the blame. Now we have the anger and the depression that follows. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Have you ever thought why Cain's offering was not acceptable to the Lord. After all, Abel was tending the flocks, Cain was tending the soil. What was wrong? What was the problem? Is the whole point of it, you've got to give an animal sacrifice for this kind of a sacrifice to be acceptable to the Lord? I don't believe that's the issue. I believe the issue has to do with firstborn or first fruits. Notice Abel gave from the firstborn. Cain gave from some of the fruits 
not the first fruits, because the principle of the first fruits of the firstborn has to do with ownership or stewardship. It's really a statement of saying, Lord, I'm giving you the first fruits. I'm giving you the tithe, if you will. I'm giving you the first fruits. And it's really a declaration that I know that you own everything and that you own me. And all that is in my hand that I'm giving you, you gave to me to begin with. You are the Lord of all. You are my Lord. But that was not in the heart of Cain. And he was unwilling to repent. And we know what followed is the first murder quickly followed. Isn't that interesting? It didn't take long, did it? It didn't take long. Once rebellion entered the scene, it didn't take long for murder, the first murder, to happen. The rebellion, the shame, the fear, the blame, the anger, the depression, and of course we could say rejection too, because Cain felt rejected because his offering was not acceptable. Isn't that interesting, the flow of that? That is certainly not what the Lord has in mind. And we see from the other verses there, the wages of sin is death. And our theme verse for this session, Isaiah 53, 6, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Jesus. Good news. Good news for each of us. As it says in Romans 5, 12, sin entered the human race through one man, and we know that man was Adam. And we know that uh, redemption came through the God-man, Jesus Christ. So to summarize what I've said in terms of the issue of sin, the issue of rebellion, we could say that sin is really, sin is really the self-life. It's the me-first life. It's missing the mark. It's uh, transgressing, transgressing God's law. It, it can be said in many different ways. But I would like to present it in the light today of different expressions of me first. Because we were made for him. We were made to be devoted to him. It's not all about us. It's all about him. So it's all about me first. That really is the essence of sin. One thing that I'd like to share today as a part of this truth encounter session is for us to have a perspective that man is not basically good. Now, that's not a contradiction to what you hear me say all the time, because I tell you how wonderful you are. But as I say that, I'm speaking with eyes of destiny. I'm speaking to essence and identity. But the truth of the matter is, from God's word, apart from him, apart from the good one in us, there is no good in us. And any good in a small g would be leftovers from the glory of God, and he created us to begin with. But then because of the fall of man, any goodness in us would be leftovers from the original creation. But there's no redemptive good. Sometimes we get hung up on that and we say, well, how can this good person, how could God allow this good person to go to hell? I mean, that's a good person. They do all kinds of good things. They wouldn't hurt anybody. But then the question is always, are they good enough? Are they nice enough? Can they do enough? Because it's an issue of God's standard. It's an issue of redemption. Is there enough redemptive good? And he's the only one that's good. There's only one that's good, and that's God. So it's not a put down. It's not a contradiction to what I've been saying. It's just, again, agreeing with God. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful, desperately wicked above all things. In Romans 3, 10, it says there's no one righteous, not even 
one. And then we've read Isaiah 53, six. And Isaiah 64, six, our righteousness is as filthy rags. You can look those verses up, meditate on those, those soak on those. Those are not intended to defeat us or discourage us. God deals with reality. We can afford to look at our sin. We can afford to look at our shortcoming. We can afford to look at any expression of me first because he died for our sins. He is the righteous one. He is the holy one. And he is the one that died for us, has given us his life so that we could live life on his terms, with his strength, and with his power. That's redemption. That's redemptive good. So when I'm saying you're wonderful, as Matt Clough shared with me earlier in this week, he says, you know, one thing that's really resonating with me about the reality of us being wonderful is he says, when, when you tell me I'm wonderful, what comes to my mind is that I'm wonder-filled. I'm wonder-filled. Or you could say I'm filled with the wonderful one. So I'm wonderful in, in essence and identity. I'm wonder-filled. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made by the one who is wonderful, and he defines me. So in and of myself, am I good? No. In and of myself, is there any redemptive good? No. We know that. We all deserve to be burning in hell today. We know that. But he counted us worthy. He came to planet Earth. He identified with us so that we could identify with him. His death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. He's given us a robe now. He's given us a ring. And by his authority, we are who he says we are. He's given us new sandals. We're in the world, but not of the world. And he's our preparation for anything that faces us. We can never be prepared. We can never do enough. We can never carry it out. He doesn't want us committed to a commitment. He's more committed to us than we could ever be committed to him. Will we receive his love and his commitment to us and live out of love and devotion in response to that love and commitment to us? And we're good because the good one says so because the good one lives in us. That's what makes us good. As we look at our history, well, there's not much good there. Oh, there may be flashes of brilliance here and there. There may be some bright spots here and there, but it's never enough. He's the one. He's the definer. He's the one that makes us good because the good one lives in us. So, whereas God's design was devotion to him, devotion to God, our failure is all summarized by saying devotion to self. And you know, as you live your life, we're either devoted to God or devoted to ourselves. Even the nice person, even the nice person that would seemingly never do any harm to anyone, God knows their heart. God knows what's in their heart. And he knows that even though on the outside, they might seem to be good and nice and wouldn't hurt anybody. He knows what's going on in their hearts. He knows their motives. And of course, if they ever get crossed, if they ever get offended, then you find out what's in their heart anyway. And he sees it perfectly. So keep in mind, let him be the definer of good because only he is good. But he lives in us. That's why we are good. Not perfect, not sinless, but blameless because we've got a robe, we've got a ring, we've got new sandals, there's been a sacrifice, the blood of the Lamb has been shed for us, we've been cleansed, we've been washed, we're a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away, the old me first nature. 
and now he lives in us. But if we yield to that tendency of the past, if we yield to selfishness, if we yield to temptation, if we yield to the enemy's devices, then we're going to look very similar to how we used to look. But that doesn't mean that's who we are. So part of what we want to do as we go along is have in, in the area of truth and perspective, who are we? What does all this mean? What is really in our hearts? Because I think the fact that you're here today tells me you're seeking, and I really believe God wants to shed some light on some things. And as he does, I believe your response is going to be to repent, because we're not on a sin hunt here today. We're not on a me first hunt here. I'm not trying to beat anybody down. I'm not trying to play the Holy Spirit, but I pray that he will show us our hearts today for her, his purposes and his benefits, because if there, if, if, uh, these different things that I'm going to be talking about today, like pride, fear of man, and idolatry, if they're in us, do we want to see them? Do we want to see it? And I pray right now as we go along, you'll ask the Lord, Lord, I want to see. I want to see what's inside of me that is not really consistent with who I am which is really not consistent with my true nature in you. But if it's there, Lord, in any part, any residue, or if I haven't surrendered my life fully to you, Lord, Lord, convict me today. Convict me today, Lord. Convict me today so that I respond to you. Well, me first has many flavors. Me first has many flavors. Romans 12.3 speaks of, don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think too highly of yourself. We could also say, don't think too lowly of yourself. But as the Word of God says in Romans 12, have a sober judgment of yourself. In other words, agree with God about yourself. Agree with Him about yourself. That is what humility is really all about. Pride isn't just, here I am, you lucky people. Pride isn't just arrogance. Pride takes different forms. But I think really at the essence of pride, whether it's thinking too highly, too lowly, I really believe the essence of pride is preoccupation with one's self. So who's on your mind? Who's on your mind most of the time? There was a book written, uh, written recently by Steve Sampson called I Was Always on My Mind. Is that your favorite book? Have you been reading that book lately? I was always on my mind. And the subtitle is, Are We Building His Kingdom or Ours? So what's true? As you're thinking, as you're going through, as you're going through life, who are you thinking about? What are you thinking about? Are you thinking about yourself all the time? Maybe you're thinking how wonderful you are in a way that goes too far, thinking too highly of yourself. Maybe you are not thinking highly of yourself at all. You get down on yourself. You get mad at yourself. And if you do get angry at yourself, who are you trusting? It's proof you're trusting yourself or you wouldn't get angry. Because a, a humble point of view realizes, apart from him, we can do nothing. So I shouldn't be surprised when I blow it. I shouldn't be surprised when I fail. I don't want to. But humility says, well, <laughs> I, I am imperfect. I'm going to fail. I don't want to, but I really shouldn't be surprised. I'm convicted. I want to change. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving the debt I could have never paid. We agree with God. Humility is agreeing with God. 
Pride is really a preoccupation with yourself. Highly, too highly, too lowly, too much. Are you always on your mind? Matt Clough allowed me the use of his face today. But uh, sometimes we're kind of bigger than life. Sometimes we are kind of bigger than life. Is that what characterizes our life? When we think of life, we think of ourselves. Now think about that for a moment. We're going to pause just for a second, and I want you to think about what's been shared so far. Are you always on your mind? Thinking too highly, thinking too lowly. What's true of you? We're going to pause for a couple of seconds. Think on that. Meditate on that. Another, another way this could be expressed is, uh, are you your greatest fan? <laughs> or we could say, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? You know, I don't think we tend to have that difficulty. It's been my experience, though there are some that think too highly of themselves in an arrogant sort of way, think they're better than others, and they are really convinced they are. I really believe that for most of us, we don't think much of ourselves. We tend to think less of ourselves. We tend not to agree with God about ourselves, but it's on the low end, not on the exaggerated thinking too highly. What I'm encouraging you to do today is to think about yourself in God's light. He thinks we're wonderful. We're his children. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. He has all kinds of plans and purposes for us. Pride can be so destructive. Uh, think about the impact that can have on your life. Think how heavy it is. Think of the bondage of pride. Think of the weight of pride, the heaviness of it. It's a heavy load to have you always on your mind. That's, that's a heavy load. And we weren't intended to carry that. And think of the effect on others, as it says, in your notes, and you can look up the references, but uh, Proverbs 13.10, an additional verse, pride breeds quarrels. Also, James 4.1-10 says a similar thing. Conflicts and contentions find their source, find their root in pride, because part of what pride, how pride operates is you think you're right, and uh, you don't want to give any ground. You're not preferring the other person. You've got to have your way. You make agreement the goal, not understanding the goal, not preferring others, different expressions thereof. But pride does breed quarrels. So it affects relationship with others. It affects our own soul and the heaviness of our soul. It's a very weighty thing. So God's remedy, God's answer, remember, his yoke is easy. Take it upon you, humility and meekness, humility, agree with him. If you're guilty, agree with him. If you're forgiven, agree with him. He thinks we're wonderful as sons and daughters. He doesn't want us to be slaves anymore. We're sons and daughters, agree with him. It doesn't feel true, agree with him. Others may not think it's true, agree with him. Your emotions may be screaming out, no, 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 it's not true, agree with him. The enemy's whispering in your ear, shaming you, bringing up the past, agree with God, not the enemy. 
And then there's the fear of man. And speaking of the handcuffs, we can really get connected with others in an unhealthy way. As it says in Proverbs 25, 29, the fear of man is a snare, and so it is. It's such a snare. Think about the fear of man for a moment. Why is there the fear of man in our lives? Usually it's because we are wanting somebody's approval. Maybe we don't think we have it. And um, maybe we're afraid we aren't going to get it, or we want their acceptance, and we don't have it, and we're afraid we're going to lose it. So it's kind of like, well, we better play it safe. Better not, what, better not say what I really think, as we're having this, this discussion. Better not say what I really think, because if I might say something you don't like, and then if you don't like what I have to say, you may not like me, and you may not want to be in relationship with me, and I don't want to risk that because I want you happy with me. So that can happen in friendships, that can happen in parent-child relationships, where in a child-centered home, the parent's trying to keep the child happy, or the, maybe the parent has some unresolved issues, wants to be the friend of the child, uh, wants the child to like them, and uh, really is more, tries to be more of a friend than a parent who is, is thinking about what's best for the child. Because love includes a yes and love includes a no. But for a child-centered home, happiness is the goal. Keep the child happy. But the sad thing is, so often that child uh, does not have a grateful heart, grows up with an ungrateful heart, and rises up and does not call that parent blessed. And in many cases, even says, I hate you. I wish you weren't my parent or whatever. Well, that all started early on. And it was continued, it was cultivated more and more because happiness was the goal. It was a child-centered home, and the goal was to keep that child happy. Keep that child from being hurt, feeling hurt. Keep that child from, um, from anything that might hurt it. So overprotectiveness and um, happiness and all those kind of things to the detriment of that child. But what, what feeds that? So often what feeds that is the parent has some need has some unmet need, and part of that is they want the child to like them. Maybe their marriage is struggling. They're not connecting with their husband or their wife, so they're looking to the child to get their needs met. So, in a sense, using that other person to meet a need in them. Those are the kind of things that feed fear of man in the sense of not really freeing us to be who we are, honestly. That doesn't mean we should go to the other extreme and just provoke people with an independent spirit and say, well, this is what I think, and if you don't like it, tough, too bad. I don't care whether you like it or not. No, that's not the right attitude either. With wisdom, with discretion, saying what we think, being a person of integrity. But if we are honest, with discretion, with wisdom, other people may be offended. They may not like it. It may cost us that relationship. It may limit that relationship. Another expression of fear of man is peace at any price which is another way of saying some of what I've already been saying. In other words, peace at any price means I want to keep the peace. I don't want any more conflict. So I realize if I say what I really think, you might be upset. We might have a conflict. So to avoid the conflict, I'm just going to say what I think you want to hear, or I just won't say much at all, because I don't want a conflict. I want to keep the peace. So it's wonderful to be a peacemaker. But there's a difference between being a peacemaker and a peace at any pricer. And as we'll develop this message as we go along, peace at any price is a form of control. And it's really selfish at the core, because if I want peace at any price, and I don't want the conflict, and who does, but if I'm operating out of fear,
fear, if it's a fear-based relationship and I'm avoiding conflict, fear of man, peace at any price, who am I looking out for? Me first, pride, thinking about myself, trying to control the outcome. It's not an overt control. I'm trying to get you to do something, but it's a covert control. I'll just avoid certain things. If I, if I avoid certain things, then we won't have conflict. So I'm controlling things that way in a passive way, a passive control. But fear of man is a snare. Of course, God wants integrity. God wants honesty. God wants us to be willing to stand alone. We don't have to. Who likes to? But are you willing to? Not provoking, not out of pride, but out of humility. Are you willing to stand alone? Are you willing to be disagreed with? Are you willing for there to be conflict? Or do you have to have the approval of that person? If you are influenced by or yielding to fear of man at some, in some way, the truth is you are connected to that person. And actually, they have more power, influence, and effect on you than Jesus Christ and who he is and who he wants to be to you. And that is a form of idolatry because that's really the heart of idolatry. The heart of idolatry is something having more power over you, more effect on you, more influence on you than Jesus and who he wants to be. Now in the state of Nebraska, some would say this is an idol, the Huskers. Some would say sports is a national idol. Of course, the Huskers aren't an idol for me, but I do enjoy. I do enjoy football, I do enjoy the Huskers, but is there something in your life that has more power over you, a person, place, or thing, that has more power, influence, and effect, or control over you than Jesus Christ and who he is and who he wants to be to you? Think about that for a moment. The Bible says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. A god would be a person, place, or thing, maybe a good thing in and of itself. A relationship, a marriage, good thing, a job, a good thing. It doesn't have to be a destructive behavior or a destructive habit. A person, place, or thing that's got more power, influence, or effect on us than Jesus, who he is, and who he wants to be to us. In 1 John 5.21, in the Amplified Version, and I'll paraphrase that a little bit, where it basically says, little children, put away your idols anything that would take place in your life that's due to God. That really is at the issue. When you look at life that way, food could have that place, drink could have that place, coffee could have that place, sex could have that place, drugs could have that place, church ministry could have that place, a good thing could have that place, a destructive thing could have that place, but the whole thing is, does that person, place, or thing have a place that is due to God to comfort you? to sustain you, to be your life, to be your essence, to be your sufficiency, to be enough, to not to be enough. Sometimes we'll turn to food for comfort. Sometimes we'll turn to other things for instant gratification. We're really using those things. Sometimes we use people to get our needs met. That's lust. That's the essence of lust. The essence of love is giving of ourselves to bless others. The essence, of, the essence of love is giving of ourselves to bless others. The essence of lust is using others 
or people, places, and things to bless us. So lust for power, lust for sex, lust fill in the blank. It's using people. It could be pornography. It could be real life usage. It could be visual, <clears throat> mental. It could be in the heart. It could be acted out. But it is the place that we are giving. And I sometimes think that the Lord is saying, how about me? How about me? You're, you're lonely today. But you're turning to food. You're turning to sex. You're tur turning to drink. How about me? How about me? Do you want me? And I, and I don't think he's saying, how about me? Shame on you. It's like, don't you want me? Oh, yeah, yeah, we want you, Lord. Well, do we? Do we? And I'm not trying to play the Holy Spirit here, but do we want the Lord? Do we want the Lord for himself? Or do, even when it comes to the Lord, do we want him just for what we can get out of him? That we need, and we do need him, don't we? We need him desperately. We need him for life. We need him for godliness. We need his provision. We need his healing touch. We need, we need, we need. That's true. But when we relate to him or as we relate to him, is that the basis of our relationship? We live life on our terms. I'm always on my mind. He's the best counselor available, so if I need some, I'll call on him. If I'm in trouble, he's the one. If I need help, no better help. I'm living my life, though. I'm at the center. He's the best helper. He's the best help in town. He's the best, best help in the universe. That's true. As soon as I got it figured out, I'm off and running again. Thanks again for bailing me out. Thanks again for helping me. Thanks again for supporting me. Thanks again for helping me fulfill my goals. Thanks again for helping me fulfill my dreams. You are helping me to get where I want to go. Or is he where I want to go? <laughs> is he my desire? And any other desire I have, is it with the Lord in mind and at the core. Well, there's judging others. And uh, some of us uh, may live life with one of these in our hands. And one thing to keep in mind about judging, judging doesn't mean you can't observe. You know, sometimes when we're visiting with someone, when I'm visiting with someone, I'll hear them express some observable phenomena. And it's not like they're talking about somebody gossiping or whatever, but they are talking about something they observe in the behavior of somebody else. That's public, okay? It's not breaking confidence. It's obvious for all. Everybody knows it's going on, whether it was the Super Bowl halftime thing or whatever. And even as they talk about it, not putting anybody down, not saying that those people are going to hell, not passing sentence on them, but just observable phenomena. Sometimes after they talk about it, they say, well, you know, I probably shouldn't have said anything. I'm being judgmental. Well, what makes for a judgmental heart versus a discerning heart? There is a difference. And let's take a look at Matthew, the seventh chapter, very quickly to see that difference. In Matthew, the seventh chapter, verses one through five, it says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged and the measure you use you'll be, will be used, will be, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? 
How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. When it comes to judging others, it, it, it's an issue of the heart. And if it gets into passing sentence on them and thinking we're better than them and it's not a benevolent, wanting the best for them attitude, it very well could be an unrighteous judgment. But expressing words that observe observable phenomena without, without passing judgment, but discerning with a redemptive view in mind, willing to be a part of the solution, so to speak, is discernment, and we should not fly, uh, shy away from that. But when it does come to unrighteous judging, having said that, when it comes to unrighteous judging, the, the difficulty with that, and it, it's wrong, so that's difficult in and of itself, but when you've got your eyes on somebody else and what's wrong with them, and you don't have a redemptive attitude, you're not committed to be a part of the solution, you're observable phenomena, but you're putting them down, and you focus on their wrong, Focusing on their wrong with an unredemptive attitude in mind keeps you from not facing what you need to face about yourself. Thus the plank in our own eye. We're focused on their speck, but we don't take a look at and we don't take responsibility for what we need to see in ourselves. I firmly believe that part of the reason God gives us eyes to see what's going on in other people's lives that may be wrong is that he wants to help us see what's going on in our lives that he wants to get. He wants to show us. He wants to get our attention. Not to put us down, but because he loves us. He loves us so much, he wants us to see. And if there's something in our lives that's in the way of intimacy with him, it's love it's love that would say, I want that out of the way because I want to be close. I want to be intimate. So it's not a put down. It's love. But if we're focused on others, we can't see ourselves. If we're blaming others, we can't see our part. A person that has victim thinking, for example, which kind of parallels this, a person that's been victimized, and maybe they have, but they're focused on the victimizer, the one that wronged them, and then they kind of adopt a victim mindset in life. I'm just a victim. Victims who are into victim thinking don't take responsibility. They don't take responsibility. Because even if we have been wronged, we have a responsibility in our response before God. Even if we have really been wronged, even if we really have been victimized, we need to resolve that on the inside. That doesn't mean that more than one thing isn't true. It doesn't mean that other person wasn't wrong. But what's our response to their wrong? If we focus on their wrong and get stuck there, then we'll never take responsibility for our part, and then we'll lose. We'll be stuck. Do we have one of these as we live life? And then the whole thing of jealousy, and a classic example of jealousy, in the, in the Word of God in um, 1 Samuel, if you want to turn there, 1 Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 18, verse 9. Actually, I'll start with verse 6. King Saul and David, you know the story. David had just, he just um, killed the Philistine, Goliath. Verse 6, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, 
The women came out from the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs and tambourines and lutes, and they danced and they sang. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. What was Saul's response? Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him, which is bitterness. They have credited, this is what he was thinking, they have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me only with thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that day on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And if you were to read on, and I encourage you to do so, Saul went on the pursuit. He tried to kill David. He was, he was insanely jealous, which is all tied into pride as well. And he was fearful of David. So we see the pride, we see the fear, we see the jealousy, the me first being lived out in his life. And he was not free. He was not free at all, which is so sad because he had been anointed. He had been anointed as king, but he got into the comparing. He got into the jealousy. He was not free to celebrate his role, his crucial role, and he was not able to celebrate what God was doing through David. And that is so true of jealousy. In my life, how jealousy worked out in the past when I was insanely jealous, and even after I was set free from the torment of demonic jealousy, and then as a Christian, in the process of maturing years following, what I would tend to do is that if David over here did well, it wasn't like I didn't want him to do well, but it would make me feel less than, because I would compare. So it wasn't jealousy from the standpoint of putting down, Lord, he's too good, he's doing too well, slow him down. No, that wasn't it at all. I could appreciate and be glad that God was using others, but as he was using others, I made the comparison and I thought, well, I'm not making much difference. I don't count for much. I don't amount to a whole lot. I'm not making much of an impact. So there was a jealousy of that kind in me. But it was because I hadn't received with humility who God made me to be in, in the crucial role that he had given me. So there's different forms of jealousy, certainly. Uh, status, materialism is such a big area. In this poster it says, a cocoon to make the other butterflies jealous. And this is a uh, probably a two million dollar house or whatever. One to two, it's a big one. A cocoon to make other butterflies jealous. And so often we look at external things, so often we put our weight and our emphasis there, the status of external things, and, and we tend to measure ourselves and measure others, but especially ourselves. What have we accomplished? What have we achieved? What have we have accumulated? You know, we look at our history in that way, and that's, that's who I am. And then, of course, as you get further along in life, you start thinking, well, what have I really accomplished in life? And, you know, has my life really accounted for much? And then there's maybe even, even uh, in different seasons of life, there can even be other um, jealousy traps, so to speak. Maybe earlier on in life, when we were even maybe more competitive than we are <coughs> later, maybe um, there were different issues going on in terms of jealousy. But then as you get later on in life, then you think, well, what have I accomplished? What have I done? You know, compared to them, look what they have, look I don't have. So whether it's material things, whether it's houses, cars, or ministries, accomplishments of different kind. But it's rooted in pride. 
because pride agrees with God and pride deals with the essence of our worth and our value, which is not, me which is not measured in external things. Well, then there's anger and resentments and bitterness and hatred and forgiveness. There was a time in my life where I really, I really had a, an issue with, uh, with anger. I was insanely jealous. I tried to control life. I uh, was uh, looking to Mindy to, uh, to give me love and acceptance. And uh, I'm sure that my face looked like this at times. Is this what you look like? When you get angry, is this what your heart looks like? What is anger? Anger is an issue. Anger is an issue of trust and submission. And I really think that Cain so personifies this. His sacrifice was not acceptable. He felt rejected, but he was unwilling to submit. He was unwilling to submit. He was unwilling to entrust himself to the Lord. He was unwilling to do it on God's terms. He was unwilling to honor him as Lord, really, which the first fruits, the principle of the first fruits, the heart of first fruits would have, would have definitely been consistent with that. So whether it's anger, resentment, bitterness, hatred, unforgiveness, all of those things are expressions of me first. Me first. And when it comes to anger, for example, we, th we tend to think, well, it's really got to be heightened. It's really got to be emotional. You've got to be in a rage. Let me bring something up that maybe you haven't thought of. Frustration. Frustration is low-grade anger. We, we think, well, I'm just frustrated. That is. That's the seed of anger right there. Frustration is the seed of anger, and then it goes on and grows on from there. And one thing that's also true, anger cannot survive without idolatry. Because if we're angry, something's too important. It's too important or we wouldn't be angry. And that's an issue of idolatry, a person, place, or thing that's got more influence, more effect, more power over us than who he is and who he wants to be. And speaking of trying to control life, if you've uh, seen any of the, uh, the Lord of the Ring uh, movies and the, the, evil, the evil eye, what's his name? Sauron. Sauron. The evil eye, and, and uh, that just so personifies, he personifies evil. But the reason I'm saying that is I think sometimes we minimize the issue of control. Because we think, well, I've just got a, I, just, I just have a control problem. I'm just a controlling person. What I really believe the Lord wants us to see, and I'm not trying to overstate this, and here again, no shame on you, but the whole issue of control at the core is, is evil, and we need to see it for what it is. All sin is evil, obviously, but at the core, because there's only one that deserves to be in control. There's only one God, and it was Satan who wanted to be as the Most High. And he led the rebellion, and all of man joined in. And Jesus came to set the captives free. And he came to rescue us, and he has. But how is it with us? As far as the picture, the picture of our life. I'll just go ahead and...
What is the picture of our lives? I'll go ahead and take the... the gavel and the book. and the helmet. <laughs> it's a lot to carry, isn't it? As we're living our lives, is this what we're looking like? We've got the helmet on. My head's probably too big to put this helmet on. I've got a big head. I mean, not, not uh, <laughs> physically, I have a big head. <laughs> so imagine me for a moment with this head on, the gavel in my hand, the anger hand here, I'm always on my mind. My leg weight, the leg weights are on. I'm fanning myself. Quite a picture, isn't it? Quite a sight. How is it with us? Well, I want to give an opportunity for you to respond today. And I really believe God is faithful, God is kind, and uh, he definitely wants to set us free. And uh, he wants to heal the brokenhearted. And he is the key. He is the key. This is one key I definitely don't want to lose. He is the key to set the captives free. But we've got to want to be free. And we've, we need to be honest. So what is it for you? Is it pride? Is there any form of pride in your heart today? Any part of fear of man? any idolatry, any judging others, any jealousy, any resentment, anger, bitterness, etc. Consider, consider the effects on you. Consider the effects on yourself. Consider the effects on others. And as we close our time today, and I'll close in prayer now, and immediately after that, I just want to give opportunity for you to take a piece of paper and write down on that piece of paper which one of those types or flavors of me first applies to you. And I'd like you to come forward to this cross, the picture of death, the exchanged life, exchanging that be first life for his life today. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Speak to people's hearts to respond. Lord, we want all me first to go, and for you first, Jesus first, Christ first, to be our portion. In Jesus' name, amen.